This is WQA Radio, a podcast from the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. And hello, I'm your host, Wes Bleed. And we know that we have a big backlog in drinking water infrastructure needs. Um, EPA acknowledges about a $400 billion backlog, and we're only spending about a billion annually. So we need to significantly, at the federal level, significantly increase uh, how much we're spending. That's Congressman Dan Kildee of Michigan discussing federal infrastructure spending and priorities during remarks he made at the WQA Mid-Year Leadership Conference. And welcome to WQA Radio, news and insights about the water treatment industry. Find us at wqa.org and on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're joining us for the first time, we're glad you're here. Be sure to reach over and hit that subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss another show. That's the magic of podcasting. And in this episode, we'll hear a portion of the remarks that Congressman Kildee made during the Joint Federal and State and Regional Government Affairs Committee meeting at the Mid-Year Leadership Conference. He begins his presentation with the latest on PFAS and his efforts to find bipartisan solutions to the problem. Later, we'll get a regulatory update from Kathleen Burbage, and I'll have our WQA tip. Now, on to Congressman Dan Kildee of Michigan on WQA Radio. Thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. And, you know, thanks for the, the work uh, that you all do and the relationship that you've established with my office. I know many of you have interacted with my office, uh, with Jordan Dickinson, who's my legislative director. Uh, and we really appreciate you serving as a, as a resource. Um, and the work you do, uh, making sure that people have access to, uh, to clean drinking water. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's something that, Obviously, many Americans take for granted and don't realize the amount of effort and work and good science and good policy that goes into that. Um, so just a little bit about what has driven me to this focus. We know about Flint, but I also represent Oscoda, Michigan, which is a small rural community. It was the home to Wurtsmouth Air Force Base. Uh, the former Wordsmith Air Force Base, which was part of the Strategic Air Command, and it's where they had a B-52 fleet. In fact, I remember as a kid, it's in the northern part of my district, going up there to watch those B-52s come and go. Uh, now, unfortunately, Wordsmith is like one of those many, many hundreds of military sites identified, or in this case, known to have pretty serious releases of PFAS, uh, dangerous chemicals that have contaminated their groundwater, um, and obviously affected veterans and the nearby uh, residents, PFAS largely coming from firefighting foam. Um, so a lot of those residents in Oscoda who use groundwater for their drinking water source um, have, have had their water affected, um, like you know, half of Americans using groundwater. So um, despite, unfortunately, um, the way this situation has unfolded, despite uh, their awareness of the PFAS contamination at Wordsmith. Um, it's been a, a tough uh, a slog to get the Air Force to take aggressive steps. Uh, they have not yet installed enough treatment equipment to stop the contamination from coming 
from the airbase into the groundwater and into uh, a nearby lake and swamp. Um, so it's had a really negative effect on that community, both in terms of the health impacts, but also obviously um, the, the economic impact is pretty significant. Unfortunately, um, even though we've been able to make some progress, we've got a lot more to do, but Ascot is only one of you know, many, many communities um, affected by uh, this issue impacting not only their drinking water, but as I said, you know, the, one of the immediate impacts is the effect on property values and local economies. I know something about how a drinking water issue can affect um, the, the local economy and property values. I've certainly seen it in Flint and now in Oscoda, it's clearly the case. Um, so people are scared and they have a right to be scared. Um, it's my view that the Department of Defense needs to do more. Uh, they failed to act, I think, with the required urgency. And so much of our effort has, on the PFAS front, has been around getting the federal government to take responsibility itself for the problems that it has caused. As a part of this, as, um, as uh, David mentioned, uh, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, um, a Republican from Pennsylvania, he and I found ourselves working on this issue together um, and we've decided to take a bipartisan approach to this. I think the only way we have actually have policy that is resilient to the political changes that are inevitable is to try to start off in a bipartisan fashion. It's a whole lot easier to start that way than to try to get back to it. So Brian and I launched the PFAS uh, task force with a handful of Democrats and Republicans. And now, you know, when we started that going on almost two years ago now, very few members of Congress even knew about PFAS, didn't know what it was. Many still don't. But every day I hear from a member of Congress that brings this up to me because they're suddenly dis uh, discovering that they have a problem. So our, our task force now has about 60 members. So for those of you who are interested in this subject, I mean, the most important um, way to, to get a member of Congress involved in the task force is for them to hear from folks back home. That's how this is, is evolving. Um, and it, it covers the broad spectrum of political ideology. It's not something that is left, right, or center. It's just comprised of members of Congress who have the problem or are aware of the problem and want to get something done about it. So every week I hear from a new member of Congress. So, you know, we just are of the belief that, uh, that there's much more that we need to do as the science continues to inform policymakers. We need to align our policies and align our budgetary priorities with what the science is telling us. Um, so we've had some wins, we, we've had some progress. Um, we now we've been able to pass legislation requiring the Air Force to stop using firefighting foam that contains PFAS by 2024. Uh, we created a nationwide study to learn where the PFAS contamination is. We've increased funding for PFAS cleanup from about $14 million in 2018 to $200 million this year. But we've got more to do. Uh, in January, the House passed H.R. 535, which is called the PFAS Action Act. Uh, it was a bipartisan effort. Um, 
we were joined by 25 Republicans uh, and, and all the Democrats. And I think actually that is not a fair depiction of the bipartisan support for it. It's just that sometimes these things fall into the partisan trap. Um, but it, it has been and continues to be a bipartisan effort, specifically what the PFAS Action Act would do is to regulate PFAS in drinking water. Uh, right now, we don't have a PFAS drinking water standard. We have a health advisory, but it's not enforceable. Uh, the PFAS Action Act would also prevent PFAS from being discharged into our waterways. Um, this will protect our source water, like in our case, the Great Lakes, and stop the spread of contamination. And finally, what the PFAS Action Act would provide is to list PFAS as a hazardous substance under CERCLA, the Comprehensive Environment Response Compensation and Liability Act. It would go a long way in protecting families from PFAS in their drinking water by being able to have an enforceable tool to require cleanup where we know PFAS is impacting communities. We continue to learn more every day about PFAS in our communities. And that's one of the reasons we created the task force, obviously to support policy, but also to continue to educate ourselves on the extent of the problem. So um, just quickly before taking whatever questions you might have, um, I'd like to talk a bit about the uh, efforts around infrastructure, because I know this is an issue that you have raised uh, as an organization and have been uh, an important voice on. We do, we do need to go big on infrastructure. It seems like, you know, it's almost a running joke around here that this is National Infrastructure Week. We've been having that week, you know, for two years. Um, we've got to get something done. And I know it, as you all know, because of what's happened in my hometown of Flint. So it's important that when we talk about infrastructure that we not fall into the trap of talking about surface transportation. We've got to talk about the unseen infrastructure that is so vital to the life and health and economy of all of our communities, especially drinking water and sewer systems that are in bad need of repair. Uh, in Flint, we saw the result of, you know, of the lack of attention to that infrastructure asset. And it's taught us a lot about the fact that there's a very high cost associated with not making the necessary investments. And so when the president proposed his plan, uh, his infrastructure plan, it was disproportionately focused on state and local government paying the lion's share. I prefer an approach more like what we have in HR2, which is our Moving Forward Act, that put a lot more emphasis on the federal role. Uh, if state and local governments had the financial resources to reinvest in public infrastructure, they'd be doing it. And we know that we have a big backlog in drinking water infrastructure needs. Um, EPA acknowledges about a $400 billion backlog, and we're only spending about a billion annually. So we need to significantly, at the federal level, significantly increase uh, how much we're spending um, to make sure that we're getting where we need to go. Uh, in you know, we're in a highly competitive environment. We need to have 21st century infrastructure. The Moving Forward Act included $25 billion for the state, uh, the drinking water state revolving fund to help rebuild infrastructure. That's a big step in the right direction. Additionally, I was able to author a provision in the Moving Forward Act that would provide $4.5 billion annually for five years, so $22.5 billion 
to remove lead service lines. Um, that's often a really difficult uh, initiative because those lead service lines typically are privately owned. But if we can get some financial resources to remove those lead service lines and prioritizing um, those in those areas that are more marginalized, where it's much more difficult from an economic standpoint to get that work done, we think we would deal with, um, you know, effectively deal with a problem that could be a repeat of what happened in uh, Flint. Obviously what happened in Flint was a complicated situation that had both to do with the infrastructure and the failure to adhere to good science in managing and operating that infrastructure, but still the fact that those lead service lines are out there is something that sooner or later we're going to have to get to, and my provision would give us the resources to do that. So um, I'll, st I'll sort of stop where I started to thank you for the work you do. You, um, as an association, call attention to this need, and you provide very necessary technical uh, and policy expertise. Uh, and so I encourage you to continue to talk to your members of Congress um, and, and help educate them on, on the issues that you've spent your careers working on. And if, if we are successful in that, I think we'll, we'll be able to reach some of these goals and get some of these initiatives moving. And that was Congressman Dan Kildee of Michigan during remarks to attendees of the WQA Mid-Year Leadership Conference in September. This is Kathleen Burbage, WQA's Global Regulatory and Government Affairs Manager with your regulatory update. WQA's Government Affairs Department has hosted two webinars on California's SAFER program. SAFER stands for Safe and Affordable Funding for Equity and Resilience, and the program is being overseen by the California State Water Resources Control Board. Funding under the SAFER program will help water systems provide safe, accessible, and affordable supply of drinking water to communities in both near and long term. Options include the use of point of entry and point of use solutions. Funding could be used for initial installation and ongoing maintenance. As stated by the Water Board, in some cases, point of use and point of entry treatment options will likely be the best long-term solution. We have recorded the SAFER program webinars and developed a webpage under Government Affairs on WQA.org where you can learn more. I am Kathleen Burbage for WQA Radio. And now our WQA tip. The WQRF contaminant occurrence map is now available. The map looks at 57 different water contaminants across the country to give you a quick snapshot of the data pulled from the states, the US EPA, and the federal safe drinking water information systems. Learn the key terms and best practices for using the map at wqrf.org map. Thanks for listening to WQA Radio, a podcast of the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. Remember, you can subscribe to WQA Radio on most popular podcast apps. Learn more about water at wqa.org and, of course, learn about WQA product certification, professional certification, and how you can become a member at wqa.org. This is Wes Bleed, so long from WQA Radio.